0: So you wear the mask, but you don't get the vaccine. You don't wear the mask, but you do get the vaccine.
1: Yeah. yeah, like, (laughs) And I'm sure for our listeners not listening now, they're like, wow, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance in, in one sentence. Give me a break. They can't have news. Nothing happens in Canada.
0: To Consumer Choice Radio. We are broadcasting on the Big Talker, 106-7 FM, every Saturday at 10 AM Eastern, repeated throughout the weekend, and always on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. I'm one half of your hosts here, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria, phoning it in, as always. And I'm joined on the line by my colleague who's up there, freezing in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it?
1: Uh, It's going well it's going well last few uh weeks of the golf season here so trying to get in as much golf as i can Uh,
0: oh there you go i was wondering why you had that nice little smirk i guess you got you got some more rounds and uh things planned here in the near future
1: yes yes i do so yeah try and squeeze in as much golf as i can before it snows that's the goal (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope we don't have too much snow this year uh, here in Vienna, because I, I do have my COVID car now, uh, I do have a, a vehicle, and unfortunately I do need to put on these winter tires, which I'm not looking forward to, because they're terrible and uh, sticky and don't look nice. But that's what we deal with, and um, you know that's what we are able to discuss here on the radio program. But I'm really mm-hmm. excited, because uh, we have a great guest on for today's program, Jacob Greer. He's a, a freelance writer, uh, someone who is an author, someone who covers many of the same topics that we really love and enjoy here on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, so we'll be speaking with Jacob. He's be phoning in from Portland. Um, I think it's going to be a nice little treat for the listeners. David.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, super interesting guy. Wide-ranging interview talking about his book on tobacco and harm reduction. His his work on. His work on uh, alcohol and cocktails, his take on the on the presidential election, so definitely a great guest. And uh, yeah, Jamie, let's uh, let's run that uh, interview.
0: Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We are live every single Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern here on the radio. And we're very delighted to have our next guest on the program. We're speaking with Jacob Greer. Uh, He writes about tobacco, public policy, and other vices. You might have seen some of his articles at Slate, Reason, The Atlantic, Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, Daily Beast, and much more. And we're here discussing um, at least one of his books, his latest, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. And he's got a second one we'll probably mention a bit later, Cocktails on Tap, The Art of Mixing Spirits in Beer. Coming to us all the way from Portland, Oregon, Jacob is on the line. How are you doing, Jacob?
2: Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Of course. Pleasure to have you. Uh, I think a lot of our interests intersect uh, with a lot of the things that we've been talking about and writing about, and uh, you've actually been doing it for a good while, and you've been putting out great stuff. We wanted to talk about your latest book. I believe it's been out now for about a year. Uh, you uh, were able to toil, sludge, do all the research, all this crazy stuff, and you learned a lot of things about uh, harm reduction, about smoking, vaping, tobacco, uh, tell us why you wrote this book and uh, sort of your, your main takeaways from it.
2: Yeah, well, it brings together things that I've been writing about for more than a decade. Uh, so I started out writing about smoking bans uh, back when I lived in Arlington, Virginia, and lived in Washington, DC. Uh, and that was about the same time that uh, a friend introduced me to my first cigar. Uh, so it was a, a topic that I'd never really cared about uh, before then. Uh, and then uh, I fell in love with cigars. I realized that you know, I don't smoke them all the time, but I really enjoyed them after having been brought up in this you know, very anti-tobacco mindset. Uh, and this was at the same time that Washington, D.C. was passing their smoking ban. Uh, and so I was initially opposed to the ban, just on the you know, typical libertarian grounds. Uh, but then over the years, I just kept writing more and more about uh, tobacco issues, and it became clear how much bad science and... Uh, weak evidence was being used to support these very alarmist claims about uh, secondhand smoke to, use, you know, to justify ever more strict smoking bans, you know, going from inside to outside, you know, to just wide open parks and beaches. Uh, and then I saw that same pattern uh, repeating with vaping, uh, which is you know, something that is not of uh, personal use to me, I don't vape, but uh, it's obviously uh, something that can be very helpful for smokers who are trying to quit and who want a safer alternative. And I've just seen the same pattern of uh, very alarmist science uh, going into the media uh, to justify restrictions on freedom. So this book was kind of my way to bring all of that uh, writing over about you know, 12 to 13 years into one coherent story and then, and then mm-hmm. into one place. And so you've,
1: been, you've, you've this book's been out for, I think, just over a year now, correct? Correct.
2: Yeah, it came yeah. out in September of okay. 2019.
1: And so what has been... What's been the feedback? Uh, what has been the response in terms of what you wrote about in the
2: book? Uh, it's been really positive so far. It's gotten uh, a little bit of press in sort of the uh, tobacco trade magazines uh, and that I've heard from uh, academics in tobacco control, uh, usually more on the harm reduction side uh, of, that, of that divide, who have uh, been very positive about it as well. Uh, especially ones in Scandinavia, which i 'm sure we'll talk about uh, the Scandinavian experience, but uh, they see it as uh, a very good encapsulation of the harm reduction debate uh, and surprisingly you know it 's gotten uh, it 's gotten some good reviews, but also no real pushback like I was prepared for uh some vehement reactions from the anti smoking movement uh, and instead they've I think they 've just tried to disregard it
0: I think one thing just cool. uh you know, as sort of a comment on your writing. I mean, you, you go through uh, a very intricate history of tobacco leaves, of using nicotine, of the different societies and how they've used it. And, and you know, I don't think you're, you're necessarily presenting uh, tobacco, vaping, or any of these products. Um, you know, you're not downplaying any of the harms. And I think a lot of people, in, in some instance, do that. And you, because it seems like you're telling the full story, Um, We can ask you what you think about, you know, the individual cigarette in a bit here, but because you're telling the whole story, I can see that it would be very hard to criticize this book because every criticism that people could levy against, um, you know, all these sin industries is something that you do echo in various parts and you do break it down. Uh, Do you think because you offer, you know, sort of a, a more nuanced sort of understanding of these products that that's why you maybe aren't getting as much criticism?
2: I hope so. I would. I would like to think that you know. I. I did make a conscious effort to. Uh, to be very clear about what the risks are, uh, even as someone who, uh, the only tobacco that I use is actually combusted tobacco in the form of cigars or pipes. So I would. My personal use is actually toward the higher end of the risk spectrum, though, certainly not as close to uh, frequent cigarette use. Uh, but yeah, I did try to be very balanced. I didn't want anybody <clears throat> to be able to credibly say that I was you know, saying there was no risk or or denying the, the evidence for it to exist. So and yeah, there was there was one there was one chapter where I, I really went into the evidence on, you know, how we found out in the 50s and beyond, you know, how why tobacco caused disease. So I really wanted to detail that.
0: Yeah, I, I really felt like I had uh, Don Draper uh, there in the background as well, who was kind of <laughs> spinning the story and do this thing. Yeah. So I liked it. Um one thing that I wanted to to ask you about is and I know for the for the book, you know, I think if every author had the opportunity to to write again or to update it, uh, there's definitely a lot of things that would happen. I think the pandemic certainly has changed a lot of stuff. Uh, what has it changed in sort of the field of harm reduction, of tobacco, of vaping? Because uh, David and I, we've been working on a few indices looking at vaping laws and flavors. And, and I mean, I, we really can't keep up. There's a lot of bans, there's a lot of alcohol stuff. What have you seen in the last year or with the pandemic that has changed?
2: Well, I think the, the first thing I noted was you know, how absurd the media coverage of the so-called uh, vape lung incidents uh, in 2019 seems now in retrospect. I mean, this was a, a national and international panic <laughs> that was allegedly due to nicotine vaping, which we now know even that's not the case at all. Uh, but the amount of press that that got and the amount of panic that that got for something that ultimately killed 62 people, I believe was the last count and, you know, in sick in 2000, uh, I think it puts into perspective just the the very alarmist atmosphere of tobacco control to begin with, that this relatively small incident received so much attention uh, now that we're in, in the midst of an actual pandemic, <laughs> you know, just it, put, it puts that in perspective. And what
1: I found so ironic in that whole case is that, I mean, it was just, its from my understanding, it's just a classic case of prohibition having un- unwanted consequences with bad, bad additives being added to uh, gray market or illicit vaping products. And the reaction from legislators across the board was, well, okay, obviously we need to ban these either a temporary, temporary moratorium on these products or banned flavors. And it's like, guys, you're just feeding the beast of prohibition. You're, you're fueling, yeah, exactly. you're fueling the proliferation of unsafe products, which uh, I mean, I, I, I admittedly have not read your book yet. I know Yael has, but have you, have you, did you dive into any of, of that discussion in terms of, Black markets in response to some of these bans and, and things like that.
2: Yeah, I was I was only able to put in a paragraph because this this was really coming in you know, like right when I needed to hit the publish button on my book, which is actually how it works when you self publish you you hit the button, uh, and so but I, I had space on uh, the end of the chapter about harm reduction to just kind of put in a statement uh, about what what was happening with this controversy at the time, uh, and yeah, that's that is. Basically, what I predicted at that point, uh, which is that this would all clearly be shown to be an issue with black market cannabis products, and that you know, by we would end up having all these new prohibitions that would lead to new black markets uh, for vaping. So, yeah, right, right on the nose is uh, is what we talked about there.
0: And one thing I, I liked is that you know, in policy. Uh, let's say circumstances or debates. you know a lot of it is about, okay, this particular scientific analysis or this particular study, and believe me, you you do cite a lot of these and you have a lot of the numbers. But one thing I really like is you just you talk about just the the aesthetic and the personal pleasure of using some of these products responsibly and in moderation. And that's something that's never talked about and never never tolerated, right It's, it's as if we're always dealing with extremes. Uh, Tell us about uh, this kind of argument.
2: So this is is my kind of where I break with the traditional harm reduction community uh, and where I might get some pushback is, uh, you know, whether you support vaping as a sort of academic or or medical approach or whether you just want complete prohibition and end of nicotine. uh, The one thing that both sides tend to agree on is that tobacco is bad (laughs) and especially smoking tobacco is bad. Uh, And so I wanted to push back on that a little bit. And uh, just acknowledge that the reason smoking has endured for so long is that it actually is enjoyable. And there, there are good things about it. You know, it wouldn't uh, be so popular if people didn't get something positive out of it. Uh, and that aspect you know, pretty much disappeared after, say, the 1990s. You know There was a great book um, called Cigarettes Are Sublime that came out in the, light, in the 1990s. It was about the appeal of smoking. And then after that, that pretty much disappeared. It just became an absolute sin uh, to, to smoke or even do nicotine in, in some forms.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, so
2: I, wanted, yeah, I feel
1: ahead. like the only person after that time period still maybe making that argument was Hitchens, where he would just be like, wow, well,
2: I enjoy it. <laughs> right. Yeah, he was one of the few. But yeah, there was just very, very few people just willing to say, like, this is actually enjoyable. Uh, I do, as a smoker, get something out of it. Uh, and there, there are trade-offs. And so in, instead of just demonizing smoking, I want to just talk about what those trade-offs are and you know, talk about what what types of smoking and you know, what kind of frequency uh, a reasonable adult might decide is uh, compatible with their values.
0: God forbid we allow people to have choice.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's um, also always viewed as an addictive thing too. You know, and people would say, oh, if you smoke cigars, you're clearly addicted. It was like, no, I have a cigar every two or three months. <laughs> it's, I'm no more addicted to a cigar than I'm addicted to an occasional ribeye steak. You know, it's just, uh, it's not something I'm going to do every day, but I'm yeah. going to enjoy it a lot on the days when I do.
0: And, you know, allowing people to have that opportunity and to be able to choose. Uh, one thing that just came out, uh, this is a couple weeks ago, was this uh, this ban on flavored tobacco products out in California. Uh, which again, California just seems to be the worst, absolute worst state for any kind of choice or <laughs> any anything fun these days. Um, you know, what do you think of this California approach uh, of, I don't know if it's, I think that was an executive order by Gavin Newsom and, uh, or at least the, the bill at the end and signing. But what do you think of this kind of California model of banning, legislating? It's all the same in San Francisco. Um, you know, you, you're over there in Portland, you're not too far away. You probably hear a lot of the same arguments in Oregon. Uh, so what is that like being in that uh, sort of environment?
2: Yeah, we narrowly avoided a uh, flavored vaping ban in Oregon, or in Portland, I should say. Uh, and I actually went to a, uh, our county board meeting. It was the first time I've ever testified at a, a government event. Uh, and that was actually, uh, it worked out really well. I showed up late and thought I wouldn't get in, but I ended up being the final speaker, which was great, because I got the last word in, and uh, was able to give the entire board my book, <laughs> and with with the uh, you know, bookmarks of the relevant passages. So, uh, it ended up going really, really well. And uh, I don't know how much uh, that had to do with it, but the, the issue did eventually essentially get dropped in, uh, in Multnomah County, which is where Portland is. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely spreading. Uh, you probably know Baylin Linekin, who's a, an attorney who writes for Reason Magazine. Uh, and he put out a paper I don't know, years ago that was something called like the California Effect or something similar, where you know, an idea like this just originates in California. And initially, pe- the rest of the country kind of looks at it and says, well, that's crazy. That's California weirdness. And, you know, five years later, they're all doing it.
0: Yeah, Prop 65, uh, anything else that you've heard us talk about on this program. Uh, We're listening to Jacob Greer here on Consumer Choice Radio on The Big Talker. Uh, We're talking about his book, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. But if you follow Jacob online, you see that he is a man of many interests. Some might say a Renaissance man. Uh, Jacob, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the other vices that you seem to partake in. I think on the video here, we see a lot of bottles um, I've read from a lot of your stuff that you give a lot of drink recipes, and uh, you're very familiar with the hospitality scene. Uh, so what is that all about?
2: Yeah, I'm lucky to have a, a number of jobs, uh, many of which have gone away because of the pandemic, because uh, it turns out that when you, when much of your work depends on people being able to gather in the same room, this is a tough time. But uh, one of the, the more fun jobs I have is I actually get paid to be a whiskey reviewer, which means that... Uh, a couple times a month, I just get boxes in the mail full of whiskey, which I then get to sit at my desk and taste and write notes on and score them on numerical scales on different taste profiles. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty fun. like my my desk always has a you know a, a stack of a few bottles on it just in my, in my lineup that I need to get to on my to-do list. So in the evening, I'll sometimes just pull one out, write the notes, and have a, a fun little side gig there.
1: On that note, I mean, are you? Do you dive into like what is your preferred type of whiskey when you're comparing bourbons to ryes to Irish whiskeys, Scotch? Do you have a particular brand or flavor that is, in your mind, kind of the maybe an undiscovered gem or maybe a, maybe a popular product actually takes that uh, takes that award?
2: I mean, am I've always been a Scotch guy. So Scotch is, has been my favorite. You know, the, um, the biggest challenge I find is reviewing bourbon. And that's because the the definitions and rules around bourbon are so strict. You know, it's, it's got to be a certain kind of mash bill. It's got to be in a new oak American barrel. It's got to be aged for a certain amount of time. And once you've pinned all those things down, uh, you know, the taste bio, profile of different bourbons, you know, there's, there's obviously differences, but, you know, writing review after review and doing you know, hundreds of them over the past few years, you know, you run out of ways to say it tastes like vanilla and oak. You've got to dig deep in the thesaurus sometime to, uh, to find the descriptors. David, I, but, think, yeah,
0: the- I think Jacob real quick is the one of the best people to ask this. And I have to ask because um, I think that spiked seltzers, hard seltzers, I think they're amazing. We do not have them yet in Europe. I was wondering, what is your opinion? Are they good for society, or are we going down a perilous path?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people enjoy them. I think it's great. We're gonna. I think that's one of the directions the industry is going in for sure. Is uh, just seeing more cool options in that canned format, you know. And, and I'm I'm interested in some of the the less seltzery ones, uh, like some of the more canned cocktails that are coming out, like a company that I work with does a uh, sparkling caipirinha with real cachaça in a can right now. And it's fantastic. Uh, And they've got some other flavors in the works. Um, Actually, they're already out. I think they have like a a passion fruit and a mango. So they're really fun things. Uh, It doesn't replicate for me, the experience of being in a real bar. But I, I think it is cool, like how to make something like that approachable at home also kind of emphasizes what's good about going to an actual bar is then you can go to the cocktail bar and get that seven ingredient multi-layered complex Mm -hmm. (laughs) concoction that you're probably never going to make at home.
1: Yeah. I think that's probably one of the things like now that you mention it, I'm sitting here going, Oh, that's something that I, I miss somewhat overpaying for a very, very well crafted cocktail at a restaurant or a bar that's something that's like, Oh, that's, it's been too long since I've been able to do that. yeah And, and you're right. You don't really, I mean, maybe, maybe you have a bit of a different take on this because it, you're, this is very much your bread and butter, but is, is the, has the pandemic maybe fueled the interest of, of ordinary people to take on these creative cocktails at home? Um, I know that I follow you on Twitter and you were posting about different Negroni recipes, I believe it was. And, and, there was a conference or something along the lines of yeah. different Negronis to make, which for me was just like, okay, this is, this is completely out of my world. But um, yeah, is this, has that become more common? Are people a little more, maybe more interested now to say, okay, how do I try and recreate this on my own?
2: Yeah, I think so. I definitely see people taking on projects. And uh, you know, one of my pivots when this all started happening was to immediately start pitching articles to some new publications you know, to, to kind of guide people through that. You know how to uh, how to make drinks at home, and you know with, with various you know topics that we dive into. Like maybe it's a specific ingredient, or you know, I wrote one article on uh, what to do with the dusty, weird bottles in the back of your cabinet that you probably haven't touched in ten years. <laughs> what can you do with this bottle of Galliano that uh, you know somebody brought to your party and then <laughs> forgot about? Uh, so that's been part of it. Uh, you know, I also do a newsletter, uh, which is JacobGreer.substack.com. Uh, which I always close out with a, a cocktail recipe to make at home as well. Uh, but yeah, we're definitely seeing it, uh, you know, in something relevant to to this show. Uh, depending on where you are in the United States, cocktails to go may or may not be legal. And say, so, you know, in New York or Washington D.C., and even 30, I think more than 30 states have legalized bars and restaurants selling cocktails to go. You know, this has been a great way for consumers to support the businesses they want to support and keep them open through the pandemic. Whereas here in Oregon, shockingly, we it's still not legal. Wow! You know, seven months in, the state hasn't made it legal for restaurants to do anything to go. So, you know, consumers have no option, and bars and restaurants are losing out on the revenue. It's, yeah. it's the most desired thing from bar and restaurant owners I talk to is the freedom to do this because it would just add that extra bit of revenue on every order that they could do. Yeah. One of David, f- David,
0: was it Maryland where uh, the governor came out like right away and was like, "All right, that's the first thing that's coming up." order cocktails to go. It was like one of these things.
1: I think it was. And it was like, it was immediate and it was like very firm. It was like, we are absolutely doing this. And now, now that now the good question is, is it going to stay forever? I know where I am in Ontario, the premier basically just, no, we don't have cocktails to go because it has to be sealed. Um, mm-hmm. But restaurants can now deliver alcohol, um, which is, I mean, it's something that always never should have been prohibited in the first place. It's ridiculous that, uh, that it was, but one of my favorite tweets was from someone in New York City, like right in the heart of the lockdown. I think this was maybe middle or end of April, and uh, they, it was just the tweet was a picture of margarita that they got delivered to their house from a restaurant, <laughs> and uh, wh- whoever it was, I don't forget, I remember who it was, but they were like, "This is the greatest thing. Why haven't we been doing this forever?" Uh, yeah, and it's just it's. It's the little things. And, you, and then you get all of the really funny stories about people being creative. And so often these laws or often the allowance for alcohol will come with the rule that you have to order food. And so someone will order like a side of mayonnaise and then like 12 beers <laughs> <laughs> to get around the role, which I, I always love those because it's like you, you're not going to stop people from being able to get what they want. So just let them order what they want.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what's been happening in, in Portland, too. You know, it's, it's not legal to drink outside, and it's not legal to do cocktails to go. But the attitude of pretty much everyone in the city has been, public drinking laws do not apply. <laughs> and, you know, the, so people are still taking beers and wines and even cocktails into parks and you know, like walking around their neighborhoods and just, you know, enjoying things while they amble around. Uh, we're just not able to spend the money at restaurants. So and it's, that's...
1: Yeah. And that's one thing I would love to see. I wrote about this here in Canada is just imagine now we probably only have three weeks left to make value out of that. But the idea that restaurants could actually sell you an open drink to go. So you could walk by and they'd be like, Hey, we have a happy hour special. This craft beer from Granville Island in British Columbia is $5 (laughs) a pint. Would you like one? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, you have Walk to legalize happy
0: hours, which uh, doesn't really exist in many states.
2: Certainly <laughs> well, uh, not North right. Carolina. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my God. It's bad. You're listening here to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Jacob Greer. Uh, Jacob Greer, I believe it's jacobgreer.com as uh, uh, your website there, Jacob. And you have your sub stack as well, which I would recommend. Um, going from. Um, your latest book to cocktails. Uh, we started to talk a little bit about politics. Uh, you've also written a little bit about Portland. Uh, Portland has been sort of the, the focus of um, some of the the international uh, and national media. I've even read about Portland uh, here in, in Vienna. It's been really interesting, which is always a beautiful city. It's great to visit. Uh, it's a place that we actually went on my honeymoon and stayed for multiple weeks and we're able to enjoy, and it's one of the greatest places in the countries. And then we saw this kind of uh, all-out war on the streets taking over. We saw uh, sort of the antifa light people. Maybe there were some Proud Boys. Uh, Jacob, I know you have written about that. Uh, Sort of what's the latest on what's happening in Portland, and why was this such a huge highlight for the nation?
2: It's it's such a confusing issue, you know, and I I think the latest is that uh, things are going to die down a bit. Uh, It's... We're, we're a very uh, fair weather city, so we'll have you know really big protests in the summer, and then once the winter and the rain comes, I think a lot of the energy will will be sapped out uh, and I think after the election we'll we'll probably see that well as well, uh, especially if it's, if it goes the way it 's looking right now and Biden wins. I think uh, the departure of trump will will rightfully uh, diffuse some of the anger as well uh, but yeah it's what 's interesting living here is seeing uh, the scale of the protest as a resident versus how they're portrayed in national and international media. Uh, Cause you know, you'll, you'll see in, in the news, like very alarming imagery uh, and, and some of it is genuinely destructive, uh, definitely not trying to downplay that, but it's just such a small part of the city that's uh, experienced that, you know, it's one courthouse and uh, uh, one they call the justice center in town. It was the site of everything. And it's downtown, so there aren't even a lot of uh, residential areas around there. So everywhere else in the city, life pretty much just went on as normal, or as normal as it could in a pandemic. Uh, And then he just had everyone else trying to impose their narrative on the city. Uh, So, you know, Trump was trying to use it for for his goals. And then, you know, people on the left were using it to to further their goals as well. And most of Portland just kind of ignored it.
1: Yeah, I I mean, for headlines for me, when I would see it, reported i was like oh okay so the whole of portland is on fire and (laughs) uh, there's an act of civil war and this is going to get ugly uh but then obviously i did see some of the stuff that you were writing and tweeting where you were like "Whoa, guys calm down it's not that (laughs) crazy it's not that crazy um how are things now i mean i haven't really followed up on uh the chop or the chaz or whatever it was called or is called i know i don't think it exists anymore but no, I don't think Seattle. so. That's no. up in
2: Seattle. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Portland, you know, it's gone in some directions that I definitely <clears throat> don't agree with. Like they, they took the protest inside the, uh, the mayor's own apartment building, uh, which okay. I think crosses some relevant lines. Um, but it's still not, I think, a major force in the city. The bigger, the bigger problems in Portland right now are just like anywhere else. Uh, the pandemic is shutting down businesses and the loss of tourism and everybody working from home is just gutting our downtown. So, oh, yeah. you know, downtown Portland is uh, in terrible shape and it's probably gonna take years to recover. Uh, and, you know, people might look back and say, well, that's the protest," and be like, yeah, maybe the protests are 10%. <laughs> yeah. 90% of the problems are you know, related to the pandemic and the business closures and just the fact that nobody's going downtown anymore.
0: And you, you mentioned, um, obviously, you know Trump's portrayal of Portland, and apparently he was endorsed by uh, whatever the the sheriff. And then the sheriff said, "I absolutely do not endorse Trump or something like this." <laughs> yeah. That was in the debate, and <laughs> uh, yeah, that that leads us to uh, one of your recent articles that I actually did see amongst uh, many non-political people um, that that I would see on Twitter and Facebook and. Uh, all the other um, fake news social networks. Uh, this is an arcdigital.media, a pox on one of their houses. Um, so in this article, I have it pulled up here, a lifelong libertarian voter is driven to break for a major party in the 2020 presidential election. Jacob, you've taken the leap of the major parties. Tell us why you did this.
2: Well, I think the, the short answer is Trump. <laughs> <laughs> more than anything. Uh, and I'm in a safe state. So, you know, I live in Oregon, we're obviously going to vote blue unless something very, very bizarre happens. Uh, so I could vote, you know, libertarian, uh, like I have in the past. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever actually voted in a swing state. So I've never really felt the pressure to uh, not throw away my vote, as they say. Uh,
0: just real quick. I think I've only yeah. ever voted in swing states. Is this a real thing? Should I actually care about um, voting like <laughs> super strategically? No. I should. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, I, that's my answer. Because me, no. For me, it's <laughs> North
0: Carolina or Florida, the two states I voted in. And
1: uh, I'm, okay. I, I always
0: hear this. I'm like, mm, and it's all these DC or New York people. It's like, well, if my vote mattered, I would vote for this. But because it doesn't, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think you could, if you want to take it purely mathematically, you could just say, you know, no vote really matters. So why even vote or vote however you want? Um, I don't know. I've I've sort of taken a semi-Kantian approach to it of uh, like the categorical imperative that you could will on everyone, which would be, you know, something like vote the way you would want other people who roughly hold your views to vote. Would I don't know, that's the, the best way I've come up with it. With it uh, or it's just the it. purely expressive vote. Of you know, I'm expressing my view. And this year, you know, I, in 2016, I had this debate with uh, a few libertarian friends, some of whom were saying, "Vote for Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter where you live. Not even if you're in a swing state. You know, like, vote for Clinton because Trump is so much worse." And I kind of broke for them from them because I one, I live in Oregon, so I wasn't concerned about being in a swing state. Uh, two, I didn't like Hillary Clinton, like I'm not a huge Biden fan, but I, I prefer her, him to Clinton. Uh, and then three, I didn't think Trump would win, I, I didn't take it as seriously as I should. Uh, and then fourth, the Libertarian ticket in 2016 was actually pretty impressive with uh, mm-hmm. Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, you know, two mm-hmm. former Republican governors with uh, pretty, pretty good records. So I felt good about like encouraging the Libertarian Party. Whereas this year, you know, Trump has clearly proven himself uh, terrible in many ways. Uh, Biden is less objectionable, than not, certainly not someone I'm excited about. And then the libertarian ticket is, you know, Joe Jorgensen, who seems very nice and is doing some good things for the party, but has absolutely no experience whatsoever. So it just yeah. feels like the, <laughs> the, the threat of a potentially contested election and violence in the streets and with, with what Trump has done to the country, like voting for his opponent just feels like the truest expression of what matters right now.
1: And I feel like the LP kind of dropped the ball because there were some serious players who were at least interested and because of however the rules work, I'm not too well-versed on that, but I know from their own words, like people like Lincoln uh, Chafee and Justin Amash who were basically like pushed out because the rules were so obscure and, and obtuse to be able to actually make it work. They could have put together a ticket that was, Established kind of people who have been in politics, who have maybe some executive experience here or there, uh, but they didn't. But then again, the election this time around is obviously is obviously quite different. Uh, what I mean, what has been the pushback? I, I know that there's a there is a very loud, uh, in my opinion, obnoxious group of, in air quotes, libertarians who <laughs> uh, who are all in for Trump. Uh, have you gotten a lot of pushback or hate for being Team Joe?
2: Definitely some. You know, the, there's some pushback from people from libertarians who just want to vote Libertarian Party, which I, I certainly get. Uh, I'm less sympathetic to the libertarian case for Trump, which to me seems to, as I put it in in the article, I said it's not the policy stupid, <laughs> drawing on the old, oldio. It's the economy stupid. Yeah, you, know, you can you can look at Trump and say, well, he's he hasn't done anything to restrict guns or he's deregulate, deregulated some things. Uh, and you know, isn't that good as a libertarian? And of course he can say yes, but I think to just focus narrowly on policy with Trump is to miss the whole point of uh, the threat that he poses to democracy. And uh, so yeah, he's, he's just destructive of our way of government, you know, threatening the, the legitimacy of our elections in a way that nobody else has before. And I worry about his corruption of the Justice Department and his just constant corruption of using the office to enrich himself, which is unlike uh, anyone in modern times for sure. Well, See, I think, you, I think you the, don't hear
0: that often on conservative talk radio. So only here on Consumer <laughs> Choice Radio.
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was just the, uh, the the Scotsman posted a story just yesterday about how our billionaire ambassador
1: oh, you know, spent the that.
2: weekend at Turnberry, and the wow. you know, taxpayers. Picked up the dime for our ambassador to go spend money at Trump's own resort, Uh, which you know, if you're a Tea Party Republican, where's the outrage about this?
0: Yeah, that's true. There have been a lot of money scandals, and uh, you know, I think that always the retort is, "Well, Trump donates his salary four hundred thousand to some random department in the government." It's like, well, (laughs) you know, that's small potatoes uh, when you compare that to actual, you know, government contracts. Um, maybe it's a bit better that it's not military and industrial complex contracts uh, like in the in the <laughs> Bush Cheney days. But yeah, it is true that the question of institutions is is really raising something for a lot of people. Um, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. I know uh, David does not have a vote, so uh, we'll argue and he can maybe <laughs> convince me a certain way. But yeah, this I, I one thing I I'm very cognizant of is I hope that politics is not just completely captured all of our culture. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, Jacob, because for me, I mean, I've got friends who were never political before, and now every other Instagram story is something about some political thing. And it's just gotten to the next level. I mean, we talk about politics because it's kind of our job. But, you know, how do you see that amongst the once apolitical crowd that's now very involved?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And as soon as you started bringing that up, Instagram was the first thing I thought of, uh, because it's, it's saturated with politics now. And it's just a terrible platform for that because you know, you pretty much all you can do is post a screenshot of a headline mm. <laughs> and you know, and that's, it's, it's such a surface level uh, way to treat these issues. And you know, what are the, I hope that goes away. That That is one of my hopes for Biden administration is people get back to photographing their food and their pets and Instagram can just kind of be that fun retreat that uh, from everything then we can leave the political arguments to Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Uh,
1: And I, I think some of that will come. So assuming Biden wins, um, assuming Biden wins, like, do we go back? Like, is this just, was this just a four or five year blip in the American like radar where the Overton window rapidly expanded? And then do we (laughs) like, do we go back to like disqualifying candidates because they, get a little overactive in a campaign rally and yell, Byah! or because <laughs> right. because they go on family vacation and they put a pet on the roof in a crate like Mitt. Like. <laughs> Do we go back to like the old way where very minuscule things were like serious issues for people or is it just gonna be continue to be this free for all forever, where it's like every day there's a new scandal. I don't think Biden's gonna fall into that trap. Uh, but there's some serious questions of like, what's left of the Republican Party? Do they become reasonable again, or <laughs> are they going to be this kind of hair on fire party forever?
2: Right. Like, what do we do with the the QAnon candidates who are going into, into Congress right now? I mean, it's who are so, going to so win? Like,
1: yeah, these people are going to win, and and <laughs> and they're not old, so real unless they get primary, they're going they could be in Congress till they're eighty. Uh, and Q yeah, will still
0: be feeding them information after all these years.
1: <laughs> right. it's, it's wild. It's wild. Oh, yeah. So what happens next? I mean, w- so assuming Biden wins, what do you forecast as the the like one year? Like if we were to revisit this a year after Biden wins, what do you think the U.S. is going to look like politically in that in that time frame? Of that oh, gap? man.
2: I don't know if I'm the right person to ask. That's just so hard to predict. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I would love to see us go back to normalcy. Like, maybe there'll just be so much joy over the pandemic being, you know, under control and us being able to go about our lives somewhat normally again. And, you know, a president who stays off Twitter most of the day. And when he does get on Twitter, it's to just say something completely (laughs) anodyne. It would be a nice change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice when, like, the outrage of the day is that Joe took a nap. Yeah, it would, be, that would be nice. Yeah, instead it's of like, my four
0: hundred one okay. k dropping, you know, a couple percentage points, uh, and then coming back up the next morning, like this is not <laughs> right. a good roller coaster to be on. <laughs> no, I,
2: I will. Uh, I'll make a book recommendation if we got a second. Uh, a book came out, I think, at the end of last year, called "Overdoing Democracy" by uh, Robert Talis, and he was actually one of my philosophy professors back in college. Uh, and it's really short; it's under two hundred pages, but it's a really, really smart book. Um, basically making the case that by getting so intensely involved in politics lately, we've lost the ability to relate to each other as human beings and as citizens and to tolerate dissent and, you know, kind of look beyond that. And I especially feel that in in Portland. You know, I'm not a Trump supporter, but, you know, if I were, I would be pilloried. You know, (laughs) I would lose so many friendships. and you know, the same thing with Instagram being absolutely saturated, you know, we've lost the ability to use social media for anything except, you know, expressing these political outrages. So that is one thing that I would be hopeful for is that we could then take a step back. And, you know, I guess that depends to some extent on the Republican Party getting back to a somewhat normal and <laughs> insane political organization, which, you know, is maybe, maybe that's too much wishful thinking, but uh yeah, yeah, I would love to see that, and I'll, I'll recommend the, that book if you're doing democracy. Is well I like
0: that. It. It, it's kind of a, it, it's like an update of uh, Schumpeter and trying to, you know, contextualize it with society. I like that. That's added to the book list.
1: Yeah, get <laughs> back good. to the days. Get, get back to the days where someone like Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be best buddies, but pretty much disagree mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah, I
0: mean, I'm pretty that. sure Schumer and uh, what's his name McConnell. Like, I'm sh- pretty sure they have their weekly cocktails after this is over. (laughs) Come on.
1: They do their debrief and they're like, can you believe the past four years? All right. So next
0: time I'm going to go up, you give me the stone cold stunner and then we're going to come out and do the (laughs) storyline. Yeah. Anyway, we've been speaking with Jacob Gree here on, on consumer choice radio. Uh, Jacob, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, What are your, uh, different links and articles uh, that people can read. How can people follow you? And uh, what more are you working on? Once uh, hopefully this pandemic wraps up and we can uh, get back to how our lives were.
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, my website, everything is pretty much my name. So Jacob Greer, G R I E R dot com. On Instagram, Twitter, Substack. Uh, yeah, those are good ways to follow me. I actually have a new book in the works, which is which is exciting. I wish it was out now because it's about how to make cocktails at home. It's a book aimed towards the home bartender. Uh, we actually, I'm writing it with a co-author, Brett uh, Adams, and we pitched it prior to the pandemic. So our timing was very, very good. They're not as good as it would have been if we had the book finished and available for sale right now. And instead it's going to come out when hopefully this is all over. Uh, well, but those lessons will carry time. over. Lessons will carry yeah. over. So. But that, that manuscript is due in about two weeks. So that's pretty much all i'm doing right now i'll
1: be looking i'll be looking for that one that's i'm feeling like that's going to be uh sitting on my coffee table for sure because that's right
2: up my alley yeah it'll be fun when it comes out
1: yeah
0: beautiful i love that jacob that's great we're going to definitely list that all of your links and books uh people do read them they're awesome they're interesting and uh, we'll definitely have you back on jacob and uh, hope to see you again soon
2: thank you this was a lot of fun influence kings and world leaders I helped Hemingway
0: right like he did and I'll bet
1: you a drink or two that I can make you put that lampshade on your head Cause since the day I left Milwaukee Lynchburg we're back on Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker FM. Yael, that was a fantastic interview with a great, great guest. Uh, definitely a friend of the show.
0: Yeah, Jacob is, is someone great to follow. I mean, he's a similar wheelhouse that we do and uh, just a very interesting writer. I think people who can write about different topics simultaneously, you know, trying to keep it interesting and having a unique perspective, it's something that's quite rare. And I think there, there aren't too many people who are able to do this very successfully. And I do think Jacob is one, uh, someone who's very easy to read. Uh, it's it's a, lot, a lot of the times it's actually cultural related. It has to do with alcohol. Maybe it has to do with his favorite cigar. And uh, maybe it's politics, uh, you know, in left-wing cities or presidential debate. Uh, either way, to great, great uh, convo with Jacob. Uh, definitely go and listen to that again if you want to or visit his website. David, I do have some uh, listener feedback. Actually, I wanted to bring to the show.
1: Ooh, okay, let's
0: hear it. So, uh, actually, interestingly enough, I was talking with uh, one of my really good friends, uh, whom I've known for years, one of my best friends, and uh, turns out his mom was driving down the radio or driving down the street the other day, heard the radio, <laughs> and uh, on popped Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, she was listening to us in uh, Topsail Beach, North Carolina, and uh, heard our sound. Said we were smooth. And uh, it looks like we're on a great trajectory, David.
1: Oh, very nice. Very nice. Here I was here I was thinking you were going to be like, yeah, my friend's mom heard you on the radio. She thinks you're an absolute idiot.
0: She <laughs> thinks this is a total dumpster fire. No, not at all. <laughs> Only positive feedback so far. And if you do have feedback for us, uh, be sure to reach out to us on Twitter and everything else. Uh, we're at Consumer C Radio. Uh, you can leave all your hate there, but if you have love, uh, rate us in the... Uh, the iTunes store or any, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, but, yes. David, I wanted to, to get you on to discuss something that's really important, something that just happened. Uh, we had uh, on television, I was playing it on YouTube overnight, the vice presidential debate.
1: Yes. Were you tuned uh, into
0: this? What did you think? I could tell that you were you were probably steaming throughout parts of it. Uh, yeah. actually, I don't know your take yet.
1: So, I really don't like Kamala Harris. Um, I really don't like Mike Pence. But for whatever reason, like, Senator Harris just did a bunch of different things that really, really irked me. And they and it it mirrored what she did unsuccessfully when she ran for president. So looking for some of those like, okay, as soon as Mike Pence interrupts me, I'm going to go with the I'm speaking, I'm speaking. And the first time she did it, she did it after the moderator interrupted her. And then Mike Pence began to speak. And then she kind of like interjected as if he was trying to mansplain over her. And of course, that's what everything on Twitter was saying. But it just seemed so forced. And then the whole vaccine question of like, if Donald Trump tells me to take a vaccine, I ain't taking it. It's like, Yeah,
0: this kind of weird anti-vax thing is across the nation uh, here in the state of North Carolina, Cal Cunningham running for Senate, uh, who's got his own scandal, by the way. But uh, he was asked about the vaccine and whether he would take it and say, well, not with this president. So now we've gone full uh, skeptical of vaccines. Um, I think Kamala Kamala did say, you know, oh, I would I would trust the scientists, uh, not Trump as if trump is concocting the vaccine in the basement of the white house <laughs> with his with his own syringe i mean come on what is that about
1: yeah it just it just seemed like a weird moment to try and like take a jab at the president but by doing so discredited the vaccine that may come out while he is in office or before he leaves office and i mean there's been lots of reporting on like the president is the is the largest source of misinformation about the pandemic because of the various things that he tweets, and people are genuinely concerned about the impact that his language has on how people perceive COVID nineteen. Well, what Kamala Harris said falls exactly into that category. She's she's actively suggesting that if there is a vaccine that Trump so happens to reference or recommend that she wouldn't take it because he said so and it's like well there is a chance we could be in that scenario where moderna or some company Pfizer, johnson and johnson whoever comes out with a vaccine and trump's going to make the announcement he's going to say hey guys it's through clinical trials everything like the fda has approved this this works now it's time to roll out the vaccine is she really not going to is she going to hold her ground and be like well no like I don't trust the president. I don't trust the 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 process of how they found like how they derived this vaccine. And if she does, then taking the vaccine becomes partisan. And I don't think of a more uglier scenario.
0: So you wear the mask but you don't get the vaccine. You don't wear the mask but you do get the vaccine.
1: Yeah, yeah like <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure for our listeners that listening now they're like, "Wow, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance." In, in one sentence. But it's true. It's like, guys, wear the masks, they work. And also when we come up with a vaccine, it's probably a good idea to get it. And so it's just ugh, the whole scenario really, really bothers me.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, there, you know, there are a couple of their uh, quips from the debate. Um, definitely. Uh, you know, I've written about Kamala Harris's policies, I think they're all bad. I think the New York Times, I mean, this really irked me. Um, this really, I was really grinding my gears. Uh, this is an article in the New York Times about Kamala Harris and the healthcare industry. And in this article, it is it's from a reporter, by the way. It's not from an op-ed writer uh, praising her uh, for uh, her, I guess, drive to protect consumers and their healthcare. And it's all about, you know, suing different health insurers or suing doctors. About you know passing all types of different regulation and raising the price of X and Y, it's like who in their right mind thinks this has helped anyone? It's just made business more expensive. It's made policies more expensive. Nobody has had their premiums like shoot down to some super affordable level in California. So I I don't know if um, maybe it's just people want her to say the right things and it doesn't matter what the consequences are because that's how that's how a lot of the stuff seemed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of you could tell a lot of the the things are fri- firing in her brain about fracking and about taxes and uh, healthcare. I mean, I wish Pence would have gone harder on the healthcare stuff. It's like, I'm sorry, I thought I saw your hand go up about you wanting to ban private insurance. Is that not the truth anymore? Something like that would have. Yeah, been if he had, if he had, but no, he yeah, had a fly on his head. Oops.
1: If he had done that in the same way that he did with taxes, saying, well. You can't say you're only going to raise taxes on people making over four hundred thousand, and get rid of the Trump tax cuts. And he he kept pushing her on that, which I thought was effective because if you're listening to that, you're going, well, she's she has she said that they're not going to do that, but they've also said that they're going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. So if you're one, if you're that middle class family in Ohio who had an extra fifteen eighteen hundred dollars in your pocket because of these tax cuts, you're gonna you're gonna scratch your head and go, wait, well, which one is it, Senator? Like, are you taxing me or are you not? Uh, so it would have been nice for him to push on health care in the same way and be like, well, one, she never answered the question about the president's health. Actually, neither of them answered it particularly well.
0: Oh, about, yeah, what would you do? Have you spoken to the presidential candidate about their health and uh, succession or something.
1: Yeah, and you don't have to say, yes, we chatted about it, and there's a protocol in place that I'll take over if X happens. That just feeds probably a terrible news cycle for the next 48 hours. But what you... Well, we know
0: what the what's in, uh, you know, the theory for Kamala Harris is, and uh, Joe Biden has himself, you know, misspoken plenty of times, and he's called it the, the Harris-Biden <laughs> administration. <laughs> yeah. it's like well she's uh, relatively young uh seemingly healthy uh joe biden Mm -hmm. is not uh you know whatever is going to be 78 years old or something uh which is super old old, very old if he's as soon as he is uh sworn in if he wins 78 i mean yeah there's a good chance this could be the president and i think in most years the vp debate Mm -hmm. never matters and, and people don't really care uh i think the the analysis that I saw, and this might be true, is it did seem like politics. Like it did, it all, yeah. Like, you know, it wasn't no, it Trump-ified. was not So maybe people had some kind of and, better feeling. And
1: I will that. say that the the, the, of the demeanor of both, Pence really came across like the Republican of six, seven years ago. He was was very polite. I thought thought it was actually a very nice gesture of him to make reference to the fact that she was a female candidate on a presidential ticket. She's obviously a woman of color. And he said that that was a great achievement. I think that, I mean, Donald Trump is never going to say that ever. He's never going to give any of his opponents an inch. So I think Mike Pence did a very good job of just showing kind of what, normalcy used to look like um i do think that mm. senator harris is a little bit more in that gotcha politics um which is where the oh progressive side like if you have a pre-existing condition they're coming for you if you have this they're coming for it like, oh, come on like
2: yeah
0: Oh, it's- that was bad and actually here's a good one i want to ask you about because uh this really it got to me, and it was—it's a way to spin the question, but in a very nasty way. This is about packing mm-hmm. the court. So the idea everyone's heard of it is uh, at present there are nine justices, or supposedly nine justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, the idea is if the Republicans have the uh, justice Amy Comey Barrett, who has been nominated by Trump, if she is, goes through and is approved by the Senate. If the Democrats win the presidency, they will change the rules and the laws, the Congress will pass a bill or something, and they will expand the Supreme Court uh, to multiple members, allowing them to appoint their own people. And the question was put to her, and she said, well, let's talk about packing the court. Uh, Donald Trump has nominated or, you know, whatever, affirmed 300 justices for judges for appeals court. And you're like, when you're listening to this, you're like, "Ah, that seems really effective. Wow, that's cool. And then she says, and not one of them was black. And that brought it all to a very, I thought that was just nasty. I didn't like uh, the insinuation there. I don't know. I mean, because also your your these appellate courts, you're taking, you know, these are in particular areas. So you're pulling people from
2: Utah.
1: Yeah. You're You're pulling people
0: from Montana. You know, it's not, not everyone is from uh, Chicago, New York city, San Francisco, you know. Interesting.
1: I mean. The 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 punchback to to that is Trump gets to nominate all of these, and Trump said this in the last presidential debate. He gets to do this because the the Obama Biden administration left so many holes to fill. If they didn't leave so many holes to fill, he wouldn't have three hundred or so appointments to to make up for. And I know I've mentioned him before, Randy Barnett, cons- very conservative constitutional scholar. A lot of respect for him. That was kind of his case for Trump as someone who is more libertarian. His case was, well, we got the courts, and we'll get an originalist kind of reading of the Constitution, and that is going to set our country on a better trajectory. And so that's why I kind of loosely support President Trump. Um, I don't necessarily agree with him, but I think that's a valid argument in favor of Trump if. You are an originalist, and you and you really kind of want the the Constitution just applied, um, rather than have it kind of weaved. and And the the big criticism of the Democrats and and the left is that they'll see the court as their as their friend when it suits them, and then they'll see the court as their enemy um, when it doesn't suit them, um, and will interpret law according to what scenario they're in, and so. Uh, yeah it's, it, the whole court thing is, is, is interesting. I think what you could have is you could have a scenario where where uh, Trump's nominee is confirmed. you have a conservative leaning Supreme Court you have Biden win the um, Biden win the presidency the Democrats have maybe the House and the Senate uh, but then the Supreme Court acts as a hedge or a check on maybe some of the more constitutionally suspect ideas that will come from the house oh and there uh, will likely which, be plenty yeah oh they're from the from congress 100 percent. they're going to put forward all sorts of crazy nonsense things that are not constitutional uh, especially the more progressive side because they just my 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 opinion of them is that they, they just don't really care they're not they don't view themselves as part of the institution they view themselves as part of the group that is set out with the mandate to completely change the institution
0: and that's a i will say that's a little bit of uh, props to uh, mike pence for bringing up balance of power uh in the debate mm-hmm. you know when was the last time you heard that in a presidential uh debate of any type you know balance of power <laughs> yeah. separation of powers congress mm-hmm. i love that i think it was uh you know there's a lot of little tidbits we can learn uh we're gonna definitely going have more analysis i believe presidential uh, debate uh i guess it's going to be virtual david we'll have some takes uh, but we'll have to bring that to you next week here on the program
1: yes yeah it's weird I, if it happens uh, uh, right now it looks like it could it might not happen because Trump doesn't want to do a virtual debate. I think they should not do a virtual debate if Trump is healthy enough to actually do the debate yeah uh, he doesn't need to be anywhere he won't he wouldn't be contagious at that time. he doesn't need to be anywhere near Joe. you don't need to have an audience keep them far but look just do it.
0: But he's got the biggest mask you've ever seen. So Joe will be safe.
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh man. Oh, awesome. man. All right, David.
0: Um, yeah. We'll uh we'll talk to you next week.
1: Yeah, great show, great week. Thank you everyone for for tuning in and we will Catch you in one week's time.
0: And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more.
1: And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at ConsumerC Radio. Uh, thanks again. Lots of big money.